Welcome into Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf and Gavin Shaw here. We got a very special mailbag episode starting this off. You guys, as usual, gave us tons of questions. And so we're going to have, we're probably going to stretch this pretty good because we got a little lack of content right now. So we're probably going to be giving you guys like four episodes of mailbags starting today and going over the next couple weeks, peppered in with some other uh, great episodes that we have planned for you as well. But uh, we're starting today with part one of the mailbag, Gavin. Yeah, and I think th- this is a good first episode because we, we sort of took a mishmash of topics and jammed them all into one. The the other episodes have a little bit more of a theme, maybe go a little bit more uh, further back into Nick's history. We mostly focus on the last couple of years in this one, uh, talking about our most hated players in recent memory. That That's really the highlight of this one. So tune in for that and more next on Locked on Nick's. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is all rebound, back up, off the glass, it's good, brings the Knicks to the ball. What he does is contagious. Oh, Robinson with a catch and slam. Across the lane, knocks, foul from behind, got it, and one to Trier. Trier drives down. All right, welcome to Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf, Gavin Shaw, breaking down your mailbag questions. And Gavin, I would give everybody an update on our quarantine status, but I, I don't think much has changed since we did our episode with Claudio the other day. So... I'm going to spare people the details of our quarantine to this point and just get into some fun Knicks questions because there's only so much you could talk about being at home doing barely anything and not interacting with people as much as you used to before it starts to wear on you, even in even in a listening format, I'm sure. So uh, we're going to hop right in. Our first question comes to us from a consistent question asker. Uh, Osiris809 at PSBart02 on Twitter says, what does Iggy need to do to become the second best young player on the team? Mitch is first, hands down. And is it feasible? Um, Gavin, I don't know how long this one's going to take. I mean, so the the guys you'd have to jump over, like if you're looking at the Knicks roster, would be, I mean, I don't think you, I don't think Dodd or Trier really count because they're kind of older. So I, I think you'd probably be looking at, you know, anybody that's like Frank Knox, Mitch, RJ, Iggy. Yeah. I think would probably be the guys you're looking at there. I mean, I guess you could lump in Wooten if you wanted to, but I don't I don't think that he really scratches the surface even yet because you haven't even seen him play on an NBA court. But like if it was those guys, I, I would say that he's got a pretty easy path to potentially overtake Knox uh, since they play a pretty similar game, but Iggy's just kind of more refined, I think at this point, but probably with a lower, with a lower ceiling than Knox, but like a way easier path to it. Um, So I I don't know about you. I mean, I guess we could start by discussing that. Like, do you think it's hard for him to hop over Knox at this point? I think, I think if he could come in, he could shoot consistently and find, you know, that sort of rhythm early on that like you could pretty quickly overtake Knox as far as the second best young player or like his path towards being the second best young player. Um, but it's, 
I don't know. It's it's not even a guarantee with Knox, which makes it that much more difficult to then start projecting him higher than the other guys. Uh, I guess we should talk about DSJ also. I mean, I'd say he's probably already. Yeah, he's there. He's, he's probably he there. Is, or you know, what, he he has a pulse, which is my only prerequisite for jumping he, DSJ. Yeah, so I think he's over DSJ already, or at least at the same level. So then, if we're talking about jumping, then you're talking about Knox. So. How do you feel about him jumping over Knox potentially? Yeah, I, like I mean, I guess that would make him the fourth best my, player. My bet would be like if he, given the same role as Knox last year, he would have been a slightly better player overall. And and again, to your point, I mean, there are plays that Knox makes that Iggy at no point in his career will like some of the, like the crazy blocks he was having down the stretch. Um, um, something we saw more so his rookie year, but. Every once in a while, a second year would kind of go coast to coast in transition and just sort of use his physicality and athleticism to make like one of those plays that that has you do a double take and question everything you thought about him. Iggy can't really do that Um, from very limited garbage time minutes, though. I mean, Iggy, certainly a little bit more heady, uh, a smarter ball mover than Knox. I think even though Knox's form is like objectively maybe aesthetically a little bit better. I think Iggy's pretty clearly the better shooter of the two. And and obviously like look, you you want you you have to question if that translates against NBA defenders, something we, we just don't have the sample size to see so far. But my, my thought would be that he would. And it, it's interesting how like they both sort of like the same spots on the court, but their games are in some ways antithetical to each other with like how active Iggy is on both ends and, and how content Knox seems just to sort of sit around a lot of the time. So Iggy is is more my cup of tea and I I would bet there's no way to know for sure, but I would bet given the same role and the same leeway that Knox had a year ago, uh, Iggy would be the better player. I think Frank is, is where it gets interesting and and it's sort of, I mean, a, a more minute version of the RJ conversation where you say like, yeah, down the road, could he be like, I, I think he's in, I think naturally he's probably a better scorer or at least more inclined to look for his own shot. And and certainly um, on paper has the better jumper of the two Um, never going to be in Frank's stratosphere defensively. And, and I just think with the steps Frank made um, last off season that finally came to fruition towards the end of the year in terms of winning in one-on-one situations and really refining his off the dribble game. uh, I I would certainly bet that Frank is close enough offensively that the the difference defensively between the two would, would put Frank quite a bit ahead still. And then RJ, that's, I mean, we were sort of joking about a pre-show that he would have to retire and decide to exclusively play basketball from this point forward in Canada, because I, I just, I don't think that's ever happening. Yeah. I, uh, I actually, I, I just looked something up and like, I almost want to push back on the Knox thing a little bit. Like, I think you could definitely, your argument about the effort level and stuff definitely is, is poignant there. I, the only thing is like, even if you look at, Iggy's G League stats this year, uh, he shot 34.4% on three-pointers in the G League this year, which, like, he shot a lot better on two-pointers than Knox ever has in his career, which is certainly something to keep an eye on. I mean, Knox hasn't cracked 40% yet in two seasons from two. Uh, Iggy managed to shoot 58% from two in the G League, which is great, obviously, but he shot 34.4% on uh, five-and-a-half three-pointers attempted per game. Knox so far in his career is shooting 33.7% on, uh, let me see here, four attempts per game in the NBA, not in the G League. So 
I I were you know I wonder even if Iggy's going to be able to hot and that's not even like a an indictment on Iggy because I think that he has a lot of other good things to his game like the passing and at least being engaged all the time on defense but I think we started to see some of that from Knox as well where Knox was starting to be more engaged on defense and a much better passer towards the end of the year with the Knicks and even a better finisher to a degree so I don't know I feel like there's a decent chance like. To sort of finish off the question, I guess. I think there's a decent chance that, like, he could draw even with Knox, potentially. And then, to your point, they play a pretty similar style of game. Um, You know, so maybe they'd be viewed sort of through the same prism, but Knox with the better physical tools, which keeps his ceiling higher. Uh, I don't think he would leap over Frank or especially not RJ. I mean, the, the thing with Frank is, like, Frank is always going to have his super elite defense and all that we're waiting for on Frank. Now at this point, it's like we're waiting at the train station, just waiting for Frank's three point percentage to come in, you know, and uh, it just hasn't come yet, but you know, it's maybe running a little late, but eventually you feel like with how Frank's jumper is and everything, that three point percentage will come around. And Frank also starts showing an ability to draw fouls and, um, you know, break down defenses and stuff like that. And that's something that I don't think Iggy's, I don't think he's ever going to be that high level of a of a shot creator. Um, I think he'll be a, a good cutter and a good spot-up three-point shooter if he reaches his peak. Um, but I don't know that he's ever going to be like an elite shot creator for himself, uh, which I think Frank is developing into. I mean, we saw Frank put a number of guys on skates towards the end of this year um, with some of his, his like hezzy dribble moves and stuff. Frank's never going to like go crazy and, you know, just blow by you. But I think his hezzy game is getting good enough where he's starting to uh, realize that he can, you know, put some defenders uh, in his dust when he wants to. And then, uh, and then RJ, yeah, RJ's too good. I mean, Iggy's never going to be, I I don't think Iggy's ever going to be the player that RJ is. And it's, you know, it's easy to look at, at Iggy's stats from uh, the G League and seeing that he averaged 21 points down there and, you know, the rebounding is good and all that stuff. But it, the fact of the matter is that's the G League. It, we have to see him on an NBA court. We only got to see him in limited minutes this year, maybe because of nerves or whatever. His stats in the NBA were pretty pretty bad. Uh, but it was very small sample size, obviously. But, uh, you know, it, it, Isaiah Hicks looked really good in the G League. You know what I mean? Like Ivan Rabb yeah. on, on the Westchester Knicks this year looked like a superstar in the G League. And, you know, it's it's not exactly a... It's a development ground, but it's not a proving ground. Um, it's not somewhere where you can brandish G League stats and be like, wow, look how great this player is going to be. Because even at Trey Burke dropping an easy 30 points per game every night down there a couple of years ago, too. Uh, and Trey Burke's like almost out of the league again. So, yeah, I, uh, I it's going to be a hard path for him. I, I think that he could maybe draw even with Knox, and that's about as far as I'd be willing to take it. I don't think he'll ever come even close to being the second best young player on the team. Yeah. That's uh, that's reasonable, but I'm, I'm almost surprised we got that much conversation uh, uh, out of it. It's worth right. talking about. I mean, yeah. he definitely has. He, it, we're talking about a guy that like it, it's not even to say it's not even like a knock on Iggy that I think he's bad or something. You know, no, we're talking no, about no, someone I know. It's just that we know so little that it's like, yeah. It's I mean, he, hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. Like he was the he was the Big Ten freshman of the year. I mean, that's like that's not a small feat. Like the Big Ten's a great basketball conference. Um, you know, he managed to take that award. He, you know, he's played on the same national teams as R.J. Barrett before, you know, for Canada. Like, you know, it's he's a, he's a pretty significant player with his own set of, you know, accolades. But um, I just think ultimately, like, 
the other three guys are way more blue chippers than than he is, and that sort of limits how high he can go. And then so it's just going to be like, can he reach a perfect version of himself? And then other guys would need to have things go wrong for them, I think, for him to jump them. You know, and so it's it's a lot of variables. You know, one of my biggest concerns in this quarantine is exercise. I, I finally had gotten my life together. I was doing it consistently for the first time in years, going to the gym, getting swole, looking good, looking better, not good, but on my way. And I can't do that anymore. So I had to find a substitute, and I, I think I found my dream one in Echelon. All you have to do is go to echelonfit.com to discover their EX1 connected fitness bikes that offer a high-quality at-home cycling experience at less than half of the price of a Peloton. Echelon makes beautifully engineered products for everyone, busy moms and dads, first responders and elite athletes, whatever your activity level. And with daily live and on-demand studio classes right in your home, you'll never have to step foot in a gym, which is good because you can't. You'll love Echelon, but if you aren't 100% satisfied, they'll give you your money back. Join the hundreds of thousands of men and women who are getting fit with Echelon today. Don't pay a ton for Peloton. Buy an Echelon bike today for under $1,000. All you got to do is go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-M-B-A to learn about their limited time, free Apple iPad, and complete details of this exclusive offer. Echelon, it's your time. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N fit.com slash L-O-M-B-A. Echelonfit.com slash LockedOnMBA. Uh, anyways, our, our next one comes from Holy Weather. It took me a, a little while to decipher this handle, but I got it. Uh, it's at up, out, and away. And this is this is a rare logistical question. Um, Holy Weather essentially using us as the TV guide, asking best way to watch old Knicks games from a decade or more ago. Uh, Alex, what, what's your advice to up, out, and away? Uh, I'd say hit up. Well, so first off, League Pass is free right now. Uh, granted, their selection of Knicks games is pretty horrendous. Uh, in their like classic game section, they have a couple from like the early '90s. They have a couple from the '70s, um, and then they, the only one that they have after like 1993 or something is because uh, I looked at this list the other day. Is a uh, the game that Kevin Love put up the 30-30 game in right 2010-11 or whatever that was. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the most recent one. Um, and the only one outside of like 1993, I think it was, and then all the rest of them are before 1993. But I mean, that's the best place to find your HD basketball games, like great quality, you know, all that stuff. So check that out first. Then uh, YouTube has tons of games. Um, you know, it's sometimes not the best quality, and sometimes they're chopped up into pieces or whatever. But you do what you can. I mean, you could definitely find some full Knicks games on there, particularly, you know, more significant ones. You could definitely find, like, I haven't really looked recently, but you could absolutely find, like, if you want, like, 99 finals or the 94 finals or something like that. If you look hard enough, you can find it on YouTube. Um, you know, the, someone slipped it by the copyright filter. And then uh, then my last suggestion would be MSG right now actually showing... Uh, a number of classic games. I know they've been focusing a lot on, oh, and NBA TV for that matter. I mean, NBA TV the other day showed 90s Knicks like all day, uh, full games, not even like abridged ones, just full games back to back to back to back. So they'll surely do that again because they know that Knicks fans are the most starved people for content uh, yeah. on the planet. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, and then MSG has been running Knicks in 60s, so they condensed the games down to an hour. Um, 
they've been running him for 12 13 season mostly focusing on that but i they on twitter the other day i saw them confirm that they are going to be playing some games from like the Spreewell houston canby era uh, so that's cool. I can only assume they're going to be playing some good 96 games. Uh, I think they. I think the other night I missed it personally, but I think they also played Game Seven of the the 1970 Finals, um, the one where Willis Reed came out of the tunnel and uh, where Clyde dropped like the most underappreciated gem in NBA Finals history. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are my recommendations. I don't know if you have anything else. No, that was that was very that was very thorough. That was that was great. That was uh, maybe maybe more than only weather uh, bargained for. That I'm I'm going to take advantage of some of those because I I didn't even realize League Pass had had games going back to the 70s. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's only a handful. It's really not. I looked at the list because you know I was curious and I was like, oh, I wonder if they have like a lot of 90s games and they didn't, which is it was disappointing. That's like the one era that I feel the least educated about. I think based off when I was born and when I started actually caring about basketball and stuff, but. uh, yeah, uh, there's there's a handful, you know, five, six, seven games, something like that, of Knicks ones. They only have maybe like thirty something games up there total. So the fact that Knicks actually got like five or six of them is pretty impressive, I guess. All right, we're gonna take our second break, but first, a quick reminder: today's show is brought to you in part by My Bookie. Sports have come to a screeching halt with basketball benched and pitchers off the mound, but our friends at My Bookie aren't going to let it get you down. Stay sane and stay entertained with access to your favorite games like Blackjack, Roulette, Slots, War, and more. It doesn't matter whether you're out on the front lines or quarantined at home. The fun doesn't have to come to an end with MyBookie. Video poker not your thing but still need a fix? They've got you covered with a host of live casino dealers online. That's right. They have professional dealers at their tables live on-site 24-7. Your favorite squad sidelined because of the pandemic? Don't even sweat it. MyBookie has partnered with some of the leading esports brands to bring you wagers on virtual action straight from the court in NBA 2K20. Plus, you can always do your part to make your bankroll great again by taking advantage of shifting odds on political bets. You can trust the industry leaders in times like these. They're reliable, upright, and best of all, they pay fast when you win. Visit mybookie.ag and use promo code LOCKEDONNBA for a 150% bonus on your first casino deposit. That's promo code LOCKEDONNBA to receive a 150% cash bonus on your first deposit, and you can claim those extra funds all the way up to $750. Use promo code LOCKEDONNBA to activate the offer. That's promo code LOCKEDONNBA. You spin, you win, you get paid. So our next question comes from Yerm Lacage at Lacage, a very uh, prolific mailbag contributor. Although so is, so is Osiris. I mean, we we got a lot of consistent people that contribute to these. Uh, Yerm wonders though, if you were Nick's GM this summer, name me one player you would absolutely get via draft free agency or trade. Gavin, I am curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's a great question and one that I mean last off season would have been. A really compelling debate if we if we've been going back and forth and trying to say all right do you want Zion do you want KD do you want Kyrie is sort of a middle ground uh, obviously in retrospect that would have been a strong no but at the time uh, three pretty compelling options even, even someone like John Morant you could have maybe made a case for and, and this summer it's a it's a little bit like I, I was really trying to like 
rack my head because free agency, there isn't the one guy who stands out, obviously, Anthony Davis, but I, I just I don't think he's realistic enough to put in here. Brandon Ingram's also in that category where he would be sort of a clear number one choice, but I, I just don't see any scenario where New Orleans uh, lets him leave. Then you kind of cut over to the draft, and there isn't like there's just not one player that I'm really in love with, which is sort of, I mean, maybe more than anything else is a process of me just not having taken the time and, and watching enough film. I, I did, um, the next time we do an all-draft episode, Alex, I spent like 20 minutes yesterday watching LaMelo ball clips and, and people breaking them down. And I, I feel like I, I still don't have a great feel for him because it, there there are elements of his game that just make him look like a basketball genius with, with how well he passes. And I mean, there's a credible argument that at some point in his NBA career, he's going to be the single best passer in the league. And then you, you look at the shot and it's still just like beyond broken and like horrible shot selection indifferent on defense at points so i it's it's kind of hard for me to like say like he's the one guy i think would revolutionize the knicks because i i just don't know how they could take another non-shooter so i kind of went for broke and said all right like let's just like go back over rosters and like who's one guy who might be available who i'd want and it's someone i harped on um I, i think in maybe two mailbags back when his name was thrown out there, certainly around the trade deadline, and that's uh, that's Lowry Markkinen of the Bulls. I, I still am. I'm a big believer in him. I think he's a highly undervalued asset, someone who, in the right situation, can be a really high level shooter and, and more as a scorer. Like is is a pretty credible athlete and a guy who who can attack the basket, hit the mid range, and hit from distance. And someone I think is going to be an all-star if he ever finds the right team. And on top of that, we we always talk about it with Mitchell Robinson. Like, I, I think the ultimate way to elevate him is to have four shooters around him. The best way to do that is have someone who can credibly play the four, who can defend the four, who's a great shooter. Markkinen fits that build to a T. So I, I think he's a great combination of value and just a picture-perfect fit on the Knicks going forward. So Lowry Markkinen, maybe to the surprise of some, is my answer to that question. I actually really like that pick, too, uh, and that's certainly a guy that I would be looking to buy low on because there's reports that have come out of Chicago that he's unhappy with how he's been played and, um, you know, how he's uh, progressing or whatever, despite the fact that, like, statistically, he didn't really have that bad of a season this year, but uh, apparently he's unhappy, and that's all you need. I mean, it seems like anymore in the NBA, if a guy's unhappy, he gets traded, uh, period. You know, there's not really much of a uh, <laughs> much of a thing about it. I think my, I actually, so I went on uh, the Posting and Toasting show last week or earlier this week, I should say, and talked about this because we did sort of some mock trades and a marketing one came up, um, a number of other ones. I had one that I thought was a little, a little outrageous sounding, but to me makes perfect sense and I would go after it. Um, I think my one guy that I would try and, and, you know, it's funny, actually, I've gotten I got pushed back once or twice on Twitter about this, that I sort of was writing this off for a while. Uh, going after Brandon Ingram is who I'm thinking. And I do still think if you just come at it to use a uh, to use an Avengers reference, if you just come at it with a plucky attitude, I, I don't think that uh, it's going to work. Um, and then I say, don't call me plucky. We don't know what yeah. it means. Um, <laughs> but uh, but. I think if you just come at it being like, oh, we'll throw a max offer sheet at him, that'll definitely work. It's going to fail. You're going to need to do more than that if you want to get him. I, I'm i becoming, like, I'm talking myself more and more into him being completely worth it, though. If you look at his stats this year, 
It's ridiculous. I mean, he was a legitimate all-star in the West, like a first ballot all-star, not a not an injury replacement or anything like that. Uh, in the West, where it's like 10 times harder to make the all-star team, he averaged 24 points on 47% from the field, 39% from three, and shot 86% from the line. Career highs all across the board, first year in New Orleans. Uh, he also averaged six rebounds and four assists, a steal, and better part of a block. I mean, he's he's great. Uh, there's no other way to put it. I mean, he's he's fully evolved into a full-on star. The only thing with New Orleans is that you run into what's his fit going to be like with Zion going forward. Um, you know, do you want to have like a bona fide like? Ingram legitimately, I think, is going to be a bona fide like number one star at this point. Um, I think he's developing into that. I mean, all those numbers I just mentioned, he just did at age 22. Um, and, you know, again, made a legit all-star team, which is a really great accomplishment for someone that young in the toughest conference, you know, in the NBA. So, I, you know, to get him, you're going to have to be more creative than just offering a, ma- him a yeah, offering him a max because no matter what, even with fit concerns or anything, the Pelicans are going to match a max deal for him. I, I feel so certain of that at this point because worst comes to worst, they let him play one more year and then trade him next summer and you have like a real superstar with three years left on his rookie maximum deal, which is really a pretty decent deal. Um, and that's, I mean... Easy money. They could trade it for whatever they want. Um, So that, I think, is off the table. You'd have to get a little more creative and spend a little more, but I'm talking myself into that being worth it because this year's free agent class isn't great. But we do want to see the Knicks show improvement next year, so then there's even a chance that they can get free agents next offseason when they will still presumably have cap room. Uh, So my thought, as far as Ingram is concerned, is I would be okay with trading this year's first round pick for him the where the the only time it would maybe give me a little bit of pause is if it lands like top three but if you land in the range that the Knicks will probably land which is somewhere from four to eight in the draft I would gladly say New Orleans David Griffin who clearly last year appears draft happy you know he wants as many draft assets as possible to keep building around Zion and whatever and keeping his cap kind of fluid um, seems to be the strategy. He didn't sign anybody to really long-term deals last year, kind of similar to the Knicks. I would say trade this year's pick. And if you have to, maybe you can throw in like Knox or something because Knox would kind of become redundant considering Ingram is like a refined finished product version of what Knox could ever hope to become. Uh, you take back Brandon Ingram then in a sign and trade. There would have to be a lot of moving pieces to the deal, obviously. Um, that reaches borderline tampering levels, but uh, you'd have to basically talk to the Pelicans, have them talk to Ingram and confirm that he wants to come to New York and that he would sign a sign and trade offer to come to New York. Um, And then work that deal out with New Orleans to make the draft pick for them on draft night. And, you know, that player is theirs essentially. And then once free agency starts, they agree with Ingram to sign the you know offer to come to the Knicks, sign and trade him to the Knicks, and then I, I'm not I always forget exactly how this works. I think if the Knicks didn't sign whoever the draft pick was to a contract right away, they could trade his rights immediately once free agency started. Um, 
But if they have to wait, I, I can't remember if it's only if the players signed their rookie contract already, which I think was the case with Andrew Wiggins and the Kevin Love trade. But worst comes to worst, you wait till like the first week of August or whatever, whatever it ends up being this time around, because we don't know when the season's going to end and when the offseason is going to go down or whatever. But trade him as soon as he's available, you know, whoever you drafted for them, get Brandon Ingram back and call it a day. I, I think that would be a great move. I think he's the only... Other than Anthony Davis, who's not going to go anywhere, uh, he's the only bona fide star that's going to hit free agency this year. And he's super, super young. I mean, being able to sign a star who's 22 and clearly not even in his prime yet that just put up the season that he did is a hell of a get. And that would be what I'd look to do with the Knicks. Then you pair him. Ingram is already a pretty decent defensive player. Pair him with RJ, with Frank, with uh, Mitch, and you got a hell of a young core to work with going forward. And the Knicks then I think jump into the conversation with teams like the Pelicans um, as far as having one of the best young cores in the entire league. So yeah, very long winded. Sorry. I, I went on for a little bit there, but I felt I've been thinking a lot about this one lately. So I had to get that one like off the head, Gavin. I'm curious what you think about that though. Yeah, the no, potential I... of, of potentially giving up this year's first round pick. If you could get someone like that. But I, I guess, like, my only question, like, even, even in that scenario, like, why would, like, what would New Orleans' incentive be to do that? Just to push the just ball? If, yeah, sorry, go just ahead. If, just if they're unsure about Ingram's fit with Zion going forward, I guess, you know, and what direction they want to, they want to take the team. Because um, you could argue that Ingram is sort of a flex forward, you know, that kind of shoots between the three and four spots. And I guess you could say the same for Zion. Like Zion can guard pretty much anybody that he wants. Um, so he could sort of, if you play the two of them together, I guess there is this potential for like a symbiosis between the two of them. But you also run into issues of like, who who do you want to have the ball in their hands more? Stuff like that. And things start to get kind of weird if guys are like a little too ball dominant like that. Not that either of them is a particularly selfish player or anything, but... I don't know. All I know is there's been reporting out there, you know, making it seem like even with the season they just had, that the Pelicans aren't necessarily like all in on Ingram, which I feel like based off the season he just had, any team should be like, no, we're keeping him forever. And the reporting just hasn't really borne that out to me so far. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's like if they're (laughs) and I'd maybe even throw in like like I said, I'd throw in Knox potentially. I'd even throw in 2023 Dallas pick, you know. Even all three of those things all at once, you know, if, if it would do it uh, to get that deal done, because I feel pretty strongly about going after him. But I don't even know if that's realistic, but just I guess just based off of how New Orleans operated last year, it seems like something maybe they'd be into doing based off how they went into it with like uh, uh, the the what pick was it? The fourth fifth you're saying the last year's drafted the fourth pick and then last they year's pick, they the fourth pick yeah. from the lakers that's right yeah and they traded down and they let the the hawks take uh hunter right and they, they got jackson hayes yeah yeah and they took jackson hayes so yeah you know, I, yeah I, I guess all i'd say is like i mean I, I think i think new orleans would be crazy to want to give up on him but i mean i'll take it a step further i would trade rj barrett straight up for him i mean i i think ingram's that good and that high level of a shooter and to me the most impressive part of his game was i i my big issue with him always was like all right like i kind of get it like he, he can shoot and like maybe maybe one year he sort of breaks through and he becomes elite 
as as far as his scoring ability, but he he was just sort of a black hole offensively, and he turned himself into a really good passer. Like I, I watched a lot of them after Zion came back because I, I I I actually thought they were the most entertaining team in the league with Zion on the court and just so many fun different elements with Lonzo and his ability to pass and shoot. Drew Holiday in there just being a kick ass guy on both ends of the floor, and, and Ingram did such a good job leveraging spacing and sort of manufacturing passes against double teams to hit Zion on little dump-offs for easy dunks. So I, I guess, any, anyways, to sum it up, I, I think he's one of like the like 10 or so best under 25 guys in the entire NBA. I would, like, honestly, like, I mean, this sounds sacrilegious, but if you ask me, like, Mitchell Robinson or him straight up, I, I think Ingram's the more valuable piece at this point. I think um, Robinson could get there just because he's more unique, but I, I would I would give up pretty much anything on the Knicks if the Pelicans were willing to trade him. My, my instinct would be that they they sign him to a max and and move on. But he's I mean he's incredibly valuable and he, he's such a building block. And and the whole thing for me is like if you have a young guy who doesn't have character issues, who's this level of a player and is a great shooter, like I, I just I think you can fit that in anywhere. And for the Pelicans to move on from it would be sort of like that classic mistake where teams sort of overthink things and and do something preemptive that doesn't make a lot of sense, kind of like what happened with Oklahoma City with James Harden. So I would I would bet that he's back there if if he wasn't going to be it. I was the Knicks. I would I would move heaven and earth to try to get him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Um I, I guess as far as more realistic targets, I'd probably say marketing, like you said. Um yeah, because I still even even in this, you know, dream scenario where the Knicks could potentially talk to Pelicans into doing it for the Knicks lotto pick this year, I still don't know that it's a given. Um, but like if the Knicks could somehow pull that off, that'd be amazing. Because then you, it's not even like you trade completely out of the draft. It's not like every other year in Knicks history ever where it's like, oh, we only have one shot in the whole draft. Like, better get it right. This time they actually have three, and, you know, three different picks. And uh, the later picks could arguably be even more valuable this time around since it's kind of a weak draft. And that's where you usually find the gems is the, the weaker drafts are usually deeper overall, which is not as high on super high end talent. So uh, I guess we shall see as far as that goes. I think we could pretty safely move on to our final question though. Right. Uh, yeah. And this, this one I'm pretty excited about. So our final question comes from Schwinnie Poo at Schwinnie Poo on Twitter. Uh, that's from Posting and Toasting, naturally, co-host of the Posting and Toasting show. He says, rank your most hated five individual player seasons since the 2012 to 13 season. Uh, I'm really excited about this one. <laughs> yeah, how about uh, we just, um, you want to start from five and like trade off? Yeah, are we doing, are we doing from least hated to most hated? Yeah. All right, deal. All right, I'll I'll start with my first one then, and then we can go down the line. So my number five was J.R. Smith's uh, 2013-14 season, which was the shoe-untying season. And, uh, of course, it came after the season when he won the Sixth Man of the Year award, which made it that much more frustrating. Um, And looking at some of his numbers, like, you could arguably even say that he had as good or better of the season, like from a shooting perspective and stuff like that. Like he shot 39% from three, which is still to this day, uh, pretty close to his career high. I mean, he shot 
he shot 40% a couple years and a little higher on the 39% uh, uh, totem pole a couple other years, like in Denver and Cleveland. But pretty pretty damn near, you know, one of his best shooting seasons that he ever had. Uh, and just in general, you know, his play on the court was not horrendous. Um, he had to start more games, which kind of sucked, instead of just coming off the bench, which he had done that 12-13 season. But the thing that was annoying about it was that he just was not taking things seriously in the 13-14 season, which was really disappointing as someone like it, it, between the 11-12 and 12-13 seasons, I had really fallen for JR, man. Like I was I was all in on the JR Smith train. I'm like he's finally like really figured it out with the Knicks. Like I think he's I think he's fantastic. Like he came in from China uh in the 11-12 season, had a real impact on the Knicks and then they re-signed him that off season. And I was like, this is awesome. Like they're going to be great. Um, and then, you know, he proceeded to win the sixth man of the year. Uh, then that 13, 14 season, just like I said, it wasn't as good. Like it, there was just something missing. And then on top of it, he was doing the, the shoe untying stuff. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it was also the same season as the, you trying to get the pipe saga. Yeah. <laughs> which made for a hilarious moment. But Stuff was, of legend. Yeah, but that was a, uh, for anyone that doesn't remember or didn't, it wasn't, you know, whatever, when that happened, uh, <laughs> he was, some girl exposed him on Twitter or something with, it was either DMs or text messages that he had sent her, where he sent her like a you up text, you know, or whatever, and then, she was like, oh, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, he's, and he responded with, you trying to get the pipe, which <laughs> is one of the more uh, uh, adventurous pickup lines I've ever heard in my life. Uh, but yeah, so just that season, like, it's not even one of the most frustrating seasons to watch ever, you know, like from his the way that he played, but just his approach and the way that he sort of threw away what had been a really good thing uh, the year prior was really annoying to me, uh, and I never quite got over it. If it's not completely obvious, so that that comes in as my number five, I think. I forgot was wasn't Rihanna involved somehow, or was that two separate things? Uh, no, Rihanna was Rihanna was the um, <laughs> Rihanna. Oh wait, oh I almost forgot too. I'm sorry. I had to mention also that that was the first year of his new contract too. And thirteen fourteen was when he did the the betrayal Instagram post about his brother Chris Smith. Also, he had like yeah. basically like strong armed the Knicks into signing his brother, and then got bent out of shape when they cut him because he took a discounted deal, and then the Knicks gave his brother a fully guaranteed minimum contract for like a million plus dollars, and then cut him because he was really bad at basketball. And Jr. saw that as a as a slight to him. Uh, the Rihanna thing though was. I believe during the 2012-13 playoffs, actually, um, I think it was in between rounds. I think it was, it was like, and the Knicks didn't have a long layover either, which was the big problem. But I think it was between the Celtics series and the Pacers series that he was seen out partying with Rihanna at like 3 a.m., like two days before a game or something, um, or maybe it was even during the Celtics series. Like I forget, I don't know that. That whole playoffs was kind of a mess for Jr., but uh, that was that was the Rihanna sequence there, and he got in trouble with someone threw a bottle at him or something, if I remember right. I, unless I'm mixing things up, but 
I don't know. There was some crazy shit going on with him and Rihanna that that off season. So right. it was just a tumultuous like year for Jr. <laughs> All right, my my number five is uh, I don't feel great about having it here because I don't think it was it was all on him. But twenty sixteen seventeen Carmelo Anthony and it, it's kind of a weird one to pick out because he he was objectively actually better that season than he was in. 2015-16, but just all the lingering stuff around him about why he was still on the team, like when the Knicks would give up on him, um, who, whose team was it between him and uh, Chris Stapps, and it was just like, I don't know, I, like I got to a point like where I really started disliking him, which sucked because obviously he was like objectively like the best Nick of our lifetime, but like I couldn't even watch games anymore because it was just like the same thing like every time, him backing someone down, taking a BS fadeaway, it probably wouldn't go in. He, he took 19 shots per game in 34 minutes. Um, wasn't really passing the ball much at that point. Went down from the previous year of four assists to three assists per game. So it was just it was just kind of hard to watch. And, and it, it was sort of sad because he had obviously gotten into such a groove five years earlier on the 12-13 team and, and was just playing at such a high level with complementary pieces around him. And, and to see a worse version of him surrounded by guys who didn't know how to play off him and couldn't sort of supplement and make up for his weaknesses, it, it was kind of heartbreaking. So that, that, that's short and sweet. But that, that season, for a variety of reasons, kind of broke my heart and, and really left a sour taste in my mouth in regard to Mello, which is ironic because as I just found out on Basketball Reference, um, one of his nicknames is apparently Sweet Melon, which I had never known before. So that's something. Mm, sweet Melon. All right. That's a that's a note to move to the next one on. Uh, <laughs> my number four is Joakim Noah's first season with the Knicks. Not to say that any of the other ones were any better or worse, but uh, the 16-17 season, the first one, uh, Actually, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence now. Now I almost want the next season after that. But either one of them, take your pick. It, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. Like, the first season was really bad because it made you realize that he sucked and was not going to be good for the Knicks. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that was just <laughs> bad. <laughs> um, the next season was when he got into the spat with Jeff Hornacek, uh about like not wanting to come off the bench or, or no, I'm sorry. The next one was, I'm like mixing my, no, it was Jeff Hornacek still. And they got into like the fight and practice or whatever, which then led to Noah just, you know, taking his ball and going home. Cause he thought that he deserved more playing time or whatever in the 17, 18 season, despite the fact that he was terrible in the 16, 17 season. Um, joking. Noah just sucks. That's, Moral of the story here. And the Knicks are still going to be paying him for like another two more years after this, like five million a year. So that sucks uh, because they use the stretch provision on him. But yeah, Joakim Noah sucks. Both those seasons suck. Take your pick. I don't care which one. One of them, he played more and proved that he sucked. The other one, he came off the bench a few times, got pissy, and then literally just went home and refused to come back to the team. So I don't, I don't like him. <laughs> Fair. All right. Uh, my number four. Um, this, this one was hard because it, it, he could have been my number one, but taking into account the extenuating circumstances around him, I would have felt bad putting him number one. So it's a DSJ of this season. Um, I mean, just sort of a, a, a shit show from the beginning. And again, some of that was, was out, out of his control with him losing his stepmom, which would have left anyone in, in sort of 
kind of an awful place and sabotaged any effort or, or any chance that he could have had a successful season. But I mean, he just, he didn't look like an NBA basketball player most of this year, just kind of doubting everything he did. Um, totally discombobulated at points on the court. It was, it seemed like, I mean, and again, given the trauma that he dealt with, maybe made sense, but that his mind was somewhere else and not someone necessarily with the talent to cover that up. Um, if that was indeed the case. So it was just, it, it was someone I, I was kind of against the Knicks getting from day one. Um, most of my thoughts on that were proved out last season. And then this year, just a horrible regression. I hope he has a career. I think he's talented. I think he's a good guy. I, I hope things change. But uh, last year's version of Dennis Smith Jr. Was, was one of the worst things I've ever seen on the Knicks. Yeah, that's an unfortunate one. Uh, but yes, definitely, definitely true. Uh, moving right along, my next one is my number three is Derrick Rose's 2016-17 season with the Knicks. Uh, it was a shit show, just kind of like Noah. He, those two birds of a feather. Uh, Rose, on top of, I mean, people will always look back on that season. I think being like, oh, it wasn't that bad. No, it was bad. He scored 18 points a game, but he shot 47% from the floor. He shot. A whopping 22% from three and was afraid of even taking that shot the whole season. Uh, he averaged less than one attempt per game. And I mean, he was never a great three-point shooter through most of his career up until last year in Minnesota. He managed to shoot 37% from three out of nowhere. Uh, but the rest of his career, he's he's a bad three-point shooter. Uh, but it was particularly bad with the Knicks. He uh, wasn't, I mean, he was getting to the free throw line four times per game, which is not that bad. Uh, but I was surprised to see that he averaged 4.4 assists. It felt like he averaged 0.0 assists for most of that year. Uh, he did not have any interest in passing the ball, not even to Carmelo really, which, you know, was kind of the guy that you need to pass the ball to. But also at the time we invested quite a bit into, uh, a certain tall, uh, lanky white guy on the team in his second season. And, we, uh, you know, didn't get to see too much of him that year because Rose was like playing keep away with the ball from him, which sucked. Uh, it was just a, and on top of it, Rose couldn't defend a paper bag um, at the, you know, from the three point line all the way to the hoop. He was just awful. He basically just let guys walk by him all year. So, yeah, in general, uh, that season sucked. He also pulled the stunt where he uh, just left to go home or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was not great. Uh, and you know, literally like just didn't show up for work one day and gave the, t like turned off his phone and didn't give the team any indication of where he was going or what he was doing. And, uh, now I don't think ever really dealt with any proper repercussions from that. I forget. Did they suspend him for a game or anything for that? I don't like, remember. I remember like the, the team PR was just trying to like explain it away. And I mean, I'm sure, Again, there was something that warranted him leaving, but it was just it was just weird all yeah. around. And I mean, what, was like one, one of those classic emergency. things that only seemed to happen to the Knicks. Yeah, he said it was a family emergency or something that he went home. I, I think the actual thing was he went home and got married or something like that, if I remember right. That's weird. Um, like married his like girlfriend or something, or I, I forget. Um, but at any rate, yeah, that season sucked. Uh, just in general, that season sucked. But especially Rose and Noah made. I, oh, and and Rose made the super team comment start that season too. Oh yeah, which made, made the Knicks <laughs> a running joke for the whole year, and still to this day, I still see that. Uh, whatever 
Bleacher Report graphic or whatever that had, you know, Rose in the Knicks. And he's like, yeah, they're saying we're going to be a super team, like another Golden State. And it's like, nobody's saying that, buddy. Like, don't worry. <laughs> so, yeah, total embarrassment of a season. I hated that game. Someone, like, definitely just said that to him on, on the way into the arena. And he was like, you know what? I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm going with it. Oh, wow. Uh, they think we're going to be a super team. Yeah, the MSU worker told me so. And Spike yeah, so- Lee. It's, Spike Lee, when he was coming in, the employee <laughs> entrance, told me that. Suffice to say, it's pretty much a lock. All right, uh, this is this is a good one too for us because uh, the next two guys, my three and your number two, um, appropriate usage of number two are the are on the same team and formed an occasional pick and roll duo. Uh, I got the uh, the guard end of that in Emmanuel Moutier, um, a guy who I sort of felt bad, kind of became a punching bag on this podcast. And I think it just it sort of became a bit between us at a certain point. Uh, again, I think a good kid who works hard and, and has some talent. But it was more so what he represented to me um, than anything else. And it was kind of like the like conscious, like anti-intellectualism like David Fisdale coached with and like to me, like how that translates into basketball is like the insistence on playing the guy who who scores more versus the guy who's the better player, which was Frank Nilakina a year ago. Obviously, there were extenuating circumstances. Frank was was even more of a lost cause a season ago than he was this season offensively. So there was certainly a case to be made that it wasn't like an insane decision, but it just seemed pretty obvious both statistically and from the eye test that the Knicks were a better team when Frank, or, or for that matter, Kadeem Allen, who I think was subjectively better than both of them that season um, when those guys were on the court. Versus Moutier and Fisdale just because he had made it his pet project and Moutier put up good counting stats, insisted on playing Moutier big chunks of the year when it was pretty obvious to everyone he wasn't going to be back next season. So that sucked. And I think he was just a microcosm for the utter failure of the uh, Fisdale era. So Moutier represents a lot of bad to me. And that's why he is number three on my list. Well, that bleeds, as you said, right into my number two, which is Ennis Cantor. And I tell you what, I'm I'm even more tempted to put him in the number one spot, if we're being honest, when I think back. But I think when you're talking about what different guys represent, I think I think my number one guys takes the cake a little more. Uh, but my cancer season that I pick is last season, the 18-19 season, where he started the year saying that he wanted to make the all-star team. The Knicks like sort of weirdly started off like, I don't even want to call it hot, but they start off lukewarm to start the year, you know, where they were like in every game and they won a few right at the beginning of the year, which gave some sort of like delusions of grandeur while Tim Hardaway was like playing his ass off, like uh, scoring like 30 points a game for the first however many weeks of the season or whatever, or the first week, I guess I should say, of the season. Um, And then, you know, predictably the Knicks fell off and the you know, the focus started to shift to, okay, we got to play the young players. Now we got to play Mitchell Robinson. We got to play this guy, that guy, whatever. Uh, you know, so cancer, we don't want to play you as much like, and if anything, we might even bench you for a little bit. And cancer took that as his opportunity to start training for his pro wrestling career, uh, cutting promos after like every single game, like insisting on doing press availability to be like, I don't know why I'm not playing. Like, uh, You know, I I feel like I can help the team win. All I want to do is help the team win. Um, I'm a young guy, too. Like, I'm only 26 years old. Like, I don't know why they're talking about me. Like, I'm, like, 35. Like, uh, all this other crap. Like, and then all the stunts he started pulling once he was on the bench. Like, 
instigating the garden crowd because the garden would start going, we want Cantor, and he'd be sitting on the bench, like, raising his arms up and, like, doing that. Which, imagine if, like, Frank Nilakina did that this year when the crowd would chant, we want Frank in certain situations. Frank would have gotten his, like, he would have gotten destroyed uh, by social media or whatever. Um, but, like, so, and granted, Cantor also got destroyed by in my opinion, the smart segments of social media about that stuff. But, uh, it, so then he, you know, he started doing that and then he had like the, all the theatrics of when he first got into the game at one point, he ran to mid court and kissed the logo before he like subbed himself in. And it's just a whole bunch of crap, dude. He, he was annoying. He was super corny off the court too. I really, I, I do appreciate that he's, uh, very active in social causes for his home country of Turkey and trying to uh, uh, like change things there because they're currently under a, a bad regime of a dictator and, you know, Cantor's wanted for death basically there or life in prison or whatever. Yeah. Cool. Glad that he's supporting that effort. His personality is grating and annoying though. And his, his idea of funny stuff is annoying and his general presence on the Knicks was annoying, and his style of play was annoying because all he was concerned with was his counting stats, and it was clearly evident in how he played the game. And, uh, yeah, he sucked. I was glad to see that he was gone. That's my final thing there. So I almost just talked myself into him being number one, but it's it's close. <laughs> so I think when my number one comes out, it will be pretty obvious why. All right, I'm going a uh, slightly different direction. Uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. in a 2017-18. It was, uh, yeah, not not a not a great year, I, I, I would say, and just sort of representative of. I, I mean, the biggest thing about it was I just I couldn't get over how insane his contract was, and and the report at the time that the Knicks had offered him like what was it like 25 million dollars more than the Hawks. Were willing to to retain him, and it was this guy that the Knicks had and traded away, and then decided that they wanted back, and it's sort of in the same mold as Moody, just like the classic Knicks mistake where they equate points with ability or overall, I, I guess, yeah, ability to help a team win, and it's it's never worked, and in this season in particular it was frustrating because. He had such a drop-off in terms of efficiency from where he was at on Atlanta the year before uh, on the Hawks. He had shot uh, 45% overall, 36% from three-point range, and then he goes to the Knicks, drops down to 42%, and 32% having to take on a bigger load. And it just it felt like a waste of a contract. And just and just the Knicks, again, for the whatever 18th year in a row at that point, making the same mistake— over and over again, of course, now he's on Dallas, and he's pretty good again. So, I mean, what do I know? Maybe he just shouldn't be a Nick. But that, that season got to me for a number of reasons. A- Alex, who's your uh, who's your number one? My number one, I feel like it's pretty predictable. I think I, think, I don't think anyone is going to be surprised at this. But my number one is Andrea Bargnani in the 2013-14 to 14 season. I say that season and not the 14-15 because... Like, for one, he was actually statistically better in 14-15, but for two, like, 14-15, that was the year that they tanked, and it was just kind of, he was good for comedy at that point, you know, along with, like, Alexi Shved and Ricky Lido and all these other lovable losers on the team. Uh, Lou Amundsen, Quincy AC, like, you just had this, like, mishmash of nobodies on that Knicks team, and 
So Bargnani was sort of like their leader of that team in a way. Uh, but 13-14, the Knicks were coming off the 12-13 season. Uh, they decided, for whatever reason, that they had to give up picks for uh, Bargnani, who, I mean, he had averaged about 20 points a game uh, for two seasons, you know, prior to when the Knicks got him. But then the season before the Knicks got him, he had a really poor season, uh, only averaging 13 points, and he was injury-riddled. And he had sort of been injury-riddled for the prior two seasons. Uh, It just was not the right time to trade for Andrea Bargnani as if there was ever a right time to trade for him. But they gave up, you know, draft capital for him, everything else. And that, that factors into why this season sucked so bad. And, and, you know, on top of it, they also traded Steve Novak, who was a fan favorite at the time. Um, just a shitty, shitty deal. Uh, and, you know, and the first round pick, which was the thing that stung the most uh, after they were just starting to recover in a way, from the picks that they given up for Carmelo, then they just trade another pick. Um, but yeah, you also uh, he just was bad too. I mean, uh, point blank, uh, he was a career thirty five percent three point shooter and managed to shoot twenty eight percent that first year on the Knicks uh, on two point six attempts per game. He had the classic uh, Air Bargnani failed dunk. That became a meme forever. Uh, he just didn't live up even slightly to what the Knicks paid for him. And the worst part was that he actively made a team worse that the year prior had been really close to maybe making Eastern Conference Finals uh, or doing something real. You know, that 12-13 team we still talk about as being this team that had so much going for it. And all you would have had to do is just make smart signings and trades to replace some of the older veterans that are on the team and keep the same framework. And, you know, maybe you could have built something instead. They try to make a quote unquote splashy deal for Bargnani and he sucked and tanked that whole thing. Uh, Carmelo still to his credit, it, 13, 14 was actually like, it, despite the fact that uh, 12, 13 was the one where the Knicks did the best uh, 13, 14. I give Carmelo so much credit because he almost single-handedly, dragged the Knicks kicking and screaming into the playoffs, but uh, Bargnani and the suckage of some of the other guys, as, as such as J.R. Smith that I mentioned earlier, managed to tank that enough that uh, he, uh, you know, the Knicks couldn't make it and Carmelo couldn't drag the Knicks to the playoffs that year. So Bargnani's 13-14 narrowly edges out uh, and his cancer, mostly because I think Bargnani was worse on the court, despite the fact that I actually found him to be kind of a lovable oaf off the court. Uh, so I didn't really despise Bargnani off the court like I did Ennis Cantor. And he even had one of my favorite Knicks moments on, on social media, like, ever, where they tweeted out the video of all the players doing, um, like, scenes from movies. And he did Zoolander from the scene where they unveil... unveil um, uh, the Derek Zoolander uh, school for kids who can't read good or whatever. And in the movie, like Zoolander goes, what is this? A school for ants? Because it's like a tiny little uh, bottle. And Bargnani uh, did, it was tasked with recreating that scene. And with his thick Italian accent goes, what is this? A school for hunts? <laughs> and it, it just, I don't know. It always, it always made me very happy. So 
he gave me that moment at least. But uh, uh, all in all, that season sucked, and he was a large part of it. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. He was that that trade, like no other, grinded on my gears at the time. And after the fact, but I'm going to continue uh, my recency bias and culminate this list with a guy from this season in Julius Randle. And I, I definitely think like if, if Randle had been on the team seven years ago, like there's a chance he doesn't even make my top five. But there was just something about it where I saw it coming the whole way. I was like, I, I didn't I don't think he's going to be that good of a shooter. I don't think he's going to make sense next to Mitch. And then just watching it play out and particularly like the first 18 games of the year under Fisdale where it was like particularly bad and there was no spacing and he was turning it over every other possession. And he had stretches under Miller where he looked really good and was credibly the Knicks best player. But uh, again, just sort of the ultimate epitome to me of, of an empty stats guy and someone who doesn't really actually help you win. And that's, that's been my theme throughout the list. And he, he's sort of the cherry on top of that. I, I would agree that it's a little bit unfair because again, someone who plays hard, someone who I think is an extremely good dude, well-intentioned, but just not what I enjoy out of a basketball player. And I think counterproductive to winning and, and especially bad when this was allegedly like the summer where like the Knicks got smart and they weren't going to overpay for guys and they weren't going to sign the wrong types of guys. And, and it's interesting that in that like Randall, like you can make an argument for some of those things and that he was young and he was coming off a good season and they didn't grossly overpay him and the contract wasn't too long. And despite that, they were still just going after the wrong type of player. So it's a very specific way that it annoys me, but it does annoy me a lot in that way. So Julius Randall, you take the crown, my most hated individual season since 2012-13. Dude, you really leaned hard into the recency bias. There's a lot of bad seasons to pick since 1314. <laughs> That's true. I want I will I just there was it's just like they're more memorable. Like you 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 have kind of like an encyclopedic memory for this stuff. So you, you just pulled out like a ton I know off the dome on Bargnani. But the, these are the guys where my I, I wanted my critiques to be specific because if not I felt like they'd be a little unfair. So I I kept it within the last couple of years mostly. Okay. Well, you were too busy in Nets land for a couple yeah, of years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, fantasizing about Joe Harris. Yeah. Yeah. You and your Joe Harris obsession. Ugh. Disgusting. Unless he signs with the Knicks and he's the best player I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, all right. With that, we can wrap up this first edition of the mailbag. As we said, we are going to be splitting this into four parts. So there's going to be plenty more to go with uh, coming up here. And we got some really nice questions from you guys. We're also, I mean, we decided we're just going to keep a persistent mailbag uh, tweet at the top of our Twitter. You know, we have a pin. So if you come up with any questions in the next, you know, week, month, whatever, whenever you want, feel free to send them to us at LockedOnNicks on Twitter. Uh, we'll be checking that and adding questions and just doing more mailbags. Uh, I'll also probably just retweet it periodically from time to time from my account or whatever. But feel free to send it to either Gavin or I. Uh, but that's it for this edition, and we will be back with another episode for you guys next week, I think. So we're running on a little condensed schedule now. But uh, in the meantime, check out uh, Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. Tell your uh, podcast, or tell your smart speaker or whatever to play that podcast next. New addition to the Locked On lineup and uh, can give you some insight into some of the prospects. But until next time, peace out, guys.